Hello and welcome back to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad and with me as always, actually as with, with me is the new and improved Benjamin Hunting after his surgery. Ben, say hi to the people. I would not say improved. I would say diminished. I am missing five teeth. Anyone out there who's listening who still has their wisdom teeth, keep them forever. Like, don't make the mistake that I did and get them removed because I have regrets. Well, we can voice those regret those regrets on our podcast. I'm just happy to have you back, man. This is good. Just Google something called dry socket and no, you'll understand. No, don't underst- do that. <laughs> Not now. Don't do that. That's what I've been going through. So if I sound weird on this podcast, it's because my mouth has been reconfigured and I'm still kind of in a lot of pain. Um, but we're going to push through that because that's what capitalism requires us to do. <laughs> What capitalism? I actually think you should be commended. Essentially, you are more. Your mouth is more efficient than ever. You're you're you, you're making with you're making do with less teeth. It's true. Right? I'm chewing the same with fewer teeth. That is the definition of efficiency. I think so. Ben, why don't you tell the people where they can find your work? Well, when I'm not in the dental chair, you can find my work at Motor Trend, at Car and Driver, at Driving Line, and at Inside Hook. Man, I sound weird today. I, I'm apologizing again for my enunciation. I hope you apologize after almost every sentence that you you say on our podcast. I mean, I probably should anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you can find my work at uh, autotrader.ca, driving.ca, Nouveau Magazine, and TechSpot. Actually, you'll actually be able to see me on camera very soon on driving.ca and some other publications. Um, If you really want to see an awkward dude talk about cars on camera i suggest you go to the driving.ca youtube channel and it's totally it's totally yeah i love video and it's totally the real sammy and not a doppelganger that they pay almost nothing i hope do you really think i my doppelganger is making that little money off of me i really think your doppelganger signed a bad deal (laughs) we need to get in touch with him we need to get him out of it really it was your mistake teaching it how to write i told you leave it in the vat use it for emergencies and you don't think video work is emergency? emergency Not with the frequency you've been tagging it in. That's true. This week we've got some cars to talk about. I think you've got the more interesting one to talk about, which is the Alpina B8, right? Yeah, so Alpina, for those who are not familiar, is kind of like BMW's version of, um, what is that company? Oh I don't goodness. know. Uh, Maybach, that's who I'm thinking of. Except, unlike Maybach, it's not a company from, like, 120 years ago that no one has any memory of. It's it's an independent pseudo-tuner that's kind of also in-house that builds very luxurious versions of BMWs that are still high-performance. So, it, it, it's got the, the bespoke, almost, feel of Maybach, but with more of a punch, Sammy. Okay, now, I have to admit, I have driven a B8... Um in november and i was pretty impressed with it um did we talk about it on the podcast just briefly but you got to spend way more time with it than i did and i think your spec the version that you have was a bit more attractive than mine that's for sure yeah so i was in pain the entire time i was driving this vehicle but that didn't detract from the fact that i thoroughly enjoyed the experience so Alpina is an interesting company. They've been around a long time. I want to say they started tuning BMWs for the mass market in the early to mid-80s. I'm not 100% sure on that. But back then, it wasn't quite as uh, exclusive as it is now. It was more of a performance and appearance thing. 
But in the last five to ten years, Alpina has really stepped up its game. And I say this because in the fall, we had an episode where I drove the XB7, which was the Alpina-tuned version of the X7 three-row crossover SUV from BMW. And I was flummoxed by how the – just by changing suspension settings and some of the electronic tuning on the the drivetrain itself – the X7 went from a vehicle that was great all around to one that could go from super soft to really quick and focused at the turn of a dial. And that's hard to do with a very heavy vehicle. So when I got to the B8, which is also quite large, I was curious as to whether they could do the same thing. And the answer is yes, Sammy. I need to add one more thing to this whole conversation about Alpina, which is a very um, – it's a niche automaker. Like it really is a small thing. When you see an Alpina and you know it, um, it's a rare sighting, right? Yeah, and they're not flashy either. Like, if you don't see the badges on the back, it's easy to miss because the the, the version of that I drove, it's a version of – it's weird. It's kind of a hybrid between a BMW M850i and the M8 Competition Grand Coupe Yeah, because it's using the same engine, sort of, with the Grand Coupe competi- – sorry, the M8 Competition's tune, sort of. But they flipped the horsepower and the torque. So it has 612 horsepower and 590 pound-feet of torque. And if you're familiar with the um, Competition Series V8, the 4.4-liter twin-turbo that BMW uses, usually there's less torque and a little more horsepower. So Mm -hmm. it's about 5 horsepower less than the Competition, but 37 more pound-feet of torque. And there's a reason for that. It's that instead of going for the all-out track experience that, I mean, a car like that's as large as the 850, or sorry, the 8 Series uh, Grand Coupe is, it's, it's kind of not something you're ever going to use on the racetrack anyway. No. You're not really looking for, in the Alpina, they kind of trade that high RPM horsepower and explosive power for more torque that smooths things over across the whole rev range. So it's mm-hmm. still very, very quick. I mean, it's 3.3 seconds to 60. It Holy. goes 201 miles an hour at the top end. But that's still – that's like a half second slower than the competition Grand Coupe, which is crazy. I mean <laughs> – That is kind of crazy. These are it's all crazy unnecessarily numbers. unnecessarily fast. That's yeah. Not, that's not – okay. But, 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 but wanna, it is unnecessarily yeah. fast, Sammy, but in a different way than the M8 is unnecessarily fast. Yes. I also want to add one more thing. Can you can anybody point out an Alpina just by looking at it? It's usually those big wheels that help, uh, and or the color that they can they can they have like an exclusive green blue. Yeah, and uh, it's it's paint. it's a basic. The color is Alpina green metallic. That's what I had. <laughs> yeah, um, but it has those multi spoke wheels usually. Like, and when I say multi spoke, I mean like many 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 spokes. Probably like yeah. 18, 20 spokes. I'm not sure exactly. Um, that's a great way count? to pick. How, I thought you would have counted anything to prolong your surgery. You would have been sat outside the parking lot, just counting all the wheels. I have just to see the. I have to see the wheels moving, like like uh, like I'm an extra in Rain Man, Sammy, and then like mm. I can instantly tell you how many spokes there are. Yes. So, but jumping in, there's also. I know you want to talk about the performance of this car. I want to talk about the other aspects of it. So I'll let you take lead on it. Um, and you let me know when you're ready to talk about this beautiful cabin. Well, I'm not super stoked about the performance. I mean, the performance is really great. What but what I'm one thing really good. Well, what I what I most it, what's most appealing about the B8's performance is the breadth of the performance that's there. Like mm-hmm. the car, like the XB7, um, it has a full range of drive modes, right? But unlike a standard BMW or an M car, you know, instead of starting at comfort, it actually starts at comfort plus, which is like. 
a disconnected, kind of set sail at sea on a cushion of bliss version of driving a 600 plus horsepower car. It's It becomes, you, you, you don't really feel what's going on with the road. You're kind of in this luxury bubble. And yet, if you twist the dial all the way over to Sport Plus, things firm up. The throttle response becomes much quicker. The transmission shifts a lot faster. And you're it begins in. It to feel more like that M8 or M8. Yeah, it feels it feels much more ferocious. That's for yeah. sure. So to have those kinds of dual personalities in a car is super difficult, especially when it's as heavy as a car is like this, because you already have to have a considerable amount of suspension response to deal with keeping the body in place. Um, I believe the Alpina has the hydraulically controlled. Um, what are they? Sway bars. To, yeah. to respond actively to body roll. So that helps a lot. And it probably allows them to use a spring rate that's not as stiff as you would have to in a car that didn't have that technology. But, I mean, to, to give you an idea, idea of how heavy this is, it has 15.6 and 15.7 inch rotors on it. I mean, that is a huge amount of braking. Uh, and the the car, um, it it when you're in that Comfort Plus mode... It's like a completely quiet luxury bubble. And when you're in Sport Plus or Sport Individual, which is what I use, because then I could use the soft suspension with the aggressive drivetrain, you get the full guttural exhaust sound and the crocs and pops and crackles and all that stuff. And it's just a really nice alternative to a car that's always on, like the M8 Grand Coupe, you know, where you kind of are constantly dealing with the hyper aggro aspects of its character. Alpina gives you a break from that. And it's also, as you mentioned, not as visually extroverted. So you don't have as much of the arrow as you do on the M8. And it's a little more under the radar, although people still look at the car because it is quite handsome. Well, I have to admit that when we drove the M8, I think we both said that it was pretty, it was good at doing that dual personality thing. Um, But the Alpina, I think does that comfort side far more, uh, gracefully than the M8 ever could. Completely. I, think, I agree. Completely. I, I think that's a huge deal. It's not easy to, to make a heavy car that is also performing a, 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 you know, a handler um, kind of support the, the drive that well, right? Like yeah, it just feels I, so smooth. And I, I want to kind of backtrack a little bit and say that this is a car that would be, you know, fun and to a certain degree exciting on a twisty road but it's not something you would ever take to a racetrack it's way too big for that it's not to i mean it would be fine it would acquit itself well well with brakes like those come on man yeah but it's not it it, this this is an all-wheel drive car it has a limited slip differential so it's it's not gonna embarrass itself on a track it's gonna do just fine but it that kind of experience it's it it would be a very much a point and shoot car you're not going to be super engaged by what's happening. And to me, that's the most important part of driving a car quickly. So this is much more rewarding to drive on a long road trip or on a twisty road that you know well, where you're going to have fun, but you're not going to you know, go crazy and push things to the limit. It's, it's, it's the kind of car you reward yourself with, not the kind of car you set lap records with. Okay. And I think that's fair. I think there's going to be a ton of buyers who want – well, maybe not a ton of buyers, but there are buyers out there who aren't interested in the, the hot lap. Um, performance of a vehicle, but just the overall usability of it on the open road. For sure. We've talked so many times about how there's that kind of customer who walks into a dealership and they want the most expensive whatever it is, right? And a lot of the times, that's the most performance you can get in the car as well. They come hand in hand. But if you want the most expensive whatever it is and you don't care so much about performance, I mean, or you care a little bit less about performance, I guess, this is the perfect car for that. It also has an exclusivity that M cars don't have because M cars are still fairly rare. 
but you also have M line and M M models and little lowercase M's and all that stuff. So it's been diluted somewhat branding wise. You see them more often. Whereas, as you mentioned, seeing an Alpina on the road is an event. I mean, it almost never happens. I really don't think. I I mean, I I believe that M's M vehicles, the real M vehicles, are actually a little bit more common than they used to be. And uh, I think an Alpina, therefore, is far more. I mean, from what I understand, Alpina is like rarer than a Ferrari. So that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, so there's only two of them, right, in the current current lineup. Uh, it starts at one hundred forty thousand eight hundred ninety five dollars. That's the B eight and the XB seven. I think there's also a B seven as well. I'm not sure if the B seven is still in the fleet. Okay. I know it was for a while, but I think it might have left. But I don't know. I don't know for sure. Sure. So yeah. my car also had. I want to say. About ten thousand dollars in options. Um, yeah, but that's easy to do with any BMW. Yeah, but just to say, this is the most expensive version of the eight series you can buy. Like it's more expensive than the Grand Coupe. Uh, sorry, than the than the M8 competition. So that that plays into the exclusivity and to those customers who, for whom the most expensive thing is the most important. Um, okay. The the okay. a couple of the options I want to mention. You were talking about how much you like the, how how you want to talk about the interior of this car. Yes. Now you sent me a photo because you were like, "Hey, was your interior really like?" gorgeous and i said no the one i drove really briefly seemed kind of basic and then you showed me a photo of yours and i was like <laughs> whoa now this is, you have this beautiful two-tone um leather interior that i can feel through the photo like it just looks and it just looks like it'd be so soft it's very nice it's called full merino leather it's an option and i believe that the colors were what like a tan and a, a darker color sammy if i remember correctly yeah yeah, yeah. and it was just I, I was drooling over. I was dreaming of it. Really, it looks um, really. It, it's really upscale. I mean, the eight series interior is nice already, but this really sets it apart. It's not cheap. It was the second most expensive option on the car behind the uh, Bowers and Wilkins surround sound audio system, which is which was fine. I'm not a huge fan of it. Uh, I if I had to choose between those two things, I would definitely get the leather because it, it really sets the interior apart. It also came with. Um, Something called glass application crafted clarity for interior elements. Now, Sammy, I'm not sure exactly what that is. I, Can we break it down? No, we can't because I don't have that information. No, because but like, I believe give me the name again. Okay, glass, so glass application quote glass application quote crafted clarity all one word for interior elements. Now, at first, I thought that was the glass shifter. But yeah. that's the Swarovski shifter. I think that all eight series have. So I'm not. Exactly sure. Mine had like a light inside of it. I, again, I think they all have that. Um, Is it like an etching on all of these glass elements inside the cabin? It's hard to say. I also had uh, a wood trim with silver effect uh, option, which was um, pretty nice. And perhaps these go together. Perhaps they don't. We may never know. <laughs> yes. And it had laser headlights. Ooh. Shout out to laser headlights. So all these things, they add about another $10,000 to the car. But I, I, love, I, I love cars with... Laser. I mean, Doctor Evil certainly loves the cars with lasers on them. I think laser headlights are the future. So, just kind of wrapping it up with this car, uh, I think it's a big win for BMW. I <laughs> think they're offering something with this car that none of their competitors have because Maybachs are typically focused on. I mean, we've like all seen extended wheelbase vehicles usually, right? Well, there's there's that side of it, the S class Maybox, which are designed kind of to be driven in rather than drive. But there's also the GLS uh, Maybach, which is oh, right. yep. hideous looking, unfortunately. And again, I think more focused on rear passengers than the driver. Whereas Alpina is a bit of both. 
I mean, the rear passengers in an 8 Series Grand Coupe, they're a little tighter than you'd have in a, in a standard full-size car because of that roofline and, like, the deep bucket of the seats in the back. Mm-hmm. But as a driver's car, in this luxury segment, I think it's a definite must-look if this is the kind of thing. If you're shopping for a, a near $200,000 car uh, with four doors, it should probably be on your list. But Ben, you you were talking about a technology feature in your car that caught my attention. Something about a recorder? Oh, yes. Yeah. So I was scrolling through the, the options list and the features list on this car. And it had something called... Uh, so it has the advanced driver assistance package, which gives you stuff like parking assistance and stop and go cruise control. Time out. Why is this not standard? It oh. bothers me that a bajillion dollar car like this does not have that feature. For the standard. same reason that the laser headlights and the surround sound oh audio God. are not standard, right? Like that is a, a, another legitimate complaint. <laughs> I agree with you. Um, but it has this thing called BMW Driver Quarter. And I'm like, what's BMW Driver Quarter? And if you go online, there's like an, an online manual from BMW that just kind of talks about the feature in general. Okay. And, and you, when you read the intro, it sounds like something it totally isn't. It goes... When driving through a scenic route, BMW Drive Recorder captures videos hands-free using the integrated onboard cameras. Oh, that's kind of cool. I love that they have to tell me it's hands-free. I love that. Yeah, videos can record (laughs) the surrounding area of a vehicle. Oh, that's interesting, too. Additionally, images can be taken automatically in the event of an accident. Okay, fair enough. And then you get to this sentence. Each video can be recorded up to 20 seconds before and after the activation of video storage and then easily downloaded to a USB. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm not sure all of my scenic routes are 45 to a minute and a half long. Like, I think I'm on a road longer than that. Sammy, maximum of 40 seconds of video. So what this is, is as you said, it's a drive cam. It's a, it's a dash cam. You can set it to automatic if it quote unquote detects an incident. So what this means is the feature when activated is constantly recording and it only stops recording and cuts a 40 second slice when you either hit something or you let it know. So it's absolutely useless for a scenic route, and I have no idea why they would, like, place that verbiage here. It doesn't even matter. It, people are interested in, in uh, dash cams. You don't have to pretend it's something else and then be like, but it's a dash cam. And you're like, whoa, total bait and switch. Okay. yeah, that's, But there that's are other cars that do have a performance recorder. Like, I think Jaguar has it. I think uh, Chevrolet has it in a bunch of cars. Or Cadillac G- has GM. It. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Has it in a couple of cars where if you put your car on track, you can, like – Get a video out of it, and you can see how your your track performance is. For sure. You don't even have to have it on the track. You can just record video if you want out the front. Why? They're not even – that's not what this does? Apparently, not at no, all. this like records it. 40 seconds of, of video, period. <laughs> that's, that's messed up. That's a waste. That is like a beta version of what the final well, it's, outcome It's not messed up. I mean it's, it's a perfectly valid feature. Just don't call it something it's not. True. Yeah, for sure. Um, anything else you want to tell me about this V8? Because I've got another car to talk about, and I would rather hear you uh, ramble on about this. No, I mean, my jaw needs a bit of a rest, so let's let's go. Um, I want to talk about the Toyota Highlander. Now, the reason I'm talking about the Highlander is because I recently had the Nissan Pathfinder, and I found that to be pretty good, but one of the best cars in this class, in terms of sales, is the Toyota Highlander. And I had to see how the new Highlander has been um, updated, how it feels these days. I had a fully loaded model. It's known as the Platinum, um, which is in reference to a very valuable metal, as far as I understand. So when you say refreshed, is this uh, like a mid-cycle for the Highlander? No, just a packaging um, refresh, anything like that. There's nothing special that has changed over it. 
um, about it. You know Toyota, man. They they don't really they don't really do much to their cars once they're out. Um, and I just thought that the model that I tested, um, I went into it thinking that it would be a really bland kind of boring car like they usually are. But when I drove this Platinum, there was more and more moments where I was like, wow, this is a really competent, fully finished vehicle that feels much better than um, just the bare basics of the class. So um, can you tell me – like I haven't driven this car since it first came out. Yes. And I believe that you and I were actually at that event together. So that's yeah, a little Yeah, I think that while. was 2019 or something like that. And yeah. at the time, I remember thinking that it was completely competent. Yeah. But there was very little about it that made me recommend it over anything else. It was like here it, – it, it was a vehicle that fell into the same category as half dozen other crossovers in its mm-hmm. – of its size. Absolutely. I think that still stands for the most part. I, th- I think that we – have yet to see Toyota surprise us with this vehicle um, the way that the Highlander, sorry, the Hyundai Palisade and Kia Telluride have done, or even the new Pathfinder, which kind of like punches up, uh, above its price class. The Highlander doesn't really do that. But if you recall, we drove the the hybrid version back in the launch, and we were pretty impressed with the fuel efficiency of that model and the responsiveness of it. Now, this motor that I drove was just the 3.5 liter V6. It was far more refined than I recall than I recall um, Toyota's V6 um, eight-speed transmission um, feeling. It was way better than I rec- uh, I remember it. So I'm I'm happy to say that they've kind of refined refi- sorry refined the powertrain. Um, made it feel a little bit more um, accommodating, like in in all circumstances. It sounds pretty good. I'm 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 happy to say that. I mean, a Highlander shouldn't sound good. Um, it's just a simple sort of um, three row crossover. But I was also just overall impressed with how easy it was to live with. I mean, it is it is spacious, but also easy to drive. It is big, but like not cumbersome. Um, and I thought that um, that's a rarity in this class. I think that's one of the, the downsides to those Korean cars and even the new Palisade. I mean, man, I'm losing I'm losing track of my names. Those Korean cars and the Pathfinder, they can feel big, but they, they, they are big, but they can feel big. And the Highlander doesn't feel that way. It feels far more um, reasonable and easier to drive um, during the everyday commute. So did yours have that removable center section for the second row? Uh, yes, it did, actually. And um, I didn't use that. I didn't take advantage of it. But I do find that se- that second console to be pretty um, useful. Um, it's it's functional, you know what I mean? Like, to just have that extra storage space or the, the armrest or, like, you know, this is a family car. You're going to be throwing all sorts of stuff in there and it can look as messy as a locker or, you know, you have features like this to, to clean it up a bit. So where would you rank this now that this version of the Highlander compared to the extremely crowded segment it's in? It's a very crowded segment. Okay. And I, I have a difficult time putting the, the new Pathfinder ahead of it. Um, Mainly because there are just a few elements of the Pathfinder that didn't resonate with me, particularly with the powertrain, which didn't feel as confident as the Highlanders does. And of course, the Pathfinder you can only get with one powertrain, while the Highlander you can get with um, a hybrid one as well. Yeah, it's 36 miles per gallon combined too, which is really impressive for the vehicle that size. Yeah, so 
it, it all depends on what the shopper is looking for. If they're looking for some, and, and we've said this before with like things like minivans, right? Um, if you're looking for something that is really like livable on the everyday life, uh, on the everyday commute with kids, with to, I think the Highlander will really um, surprise you. But if you're looking for something that like extends your value, the value for your money, if you're looking for something that feels kind of high end, luxurious, has the latest technology then yeah one of those korean cars or the or the pathfinder will will deliver but not everybody's looking for that kind of wow factor i think technology is not always the number one buying reason for a for a new car right like they want something that will that will do the job and do the job well yeah, and it's easy to live with technology is something that car companies use to sell cars more than it's something that i think buyers actually specifically shop for and the experience it's something that you can't put on paper or in a, in an ad effectively. And I really do think that the Heinler just feels like a like a like a like a member of the family sometimes. Like it just knows what's going on. It feels like a passenger. It's it's great at that. It just feels like you are in the right car, in the right place. It is it is with you the whole way. And it's unlike other vehicles that feel like you're fighting against them or you're like, this isn't exactly what I had in mind. Like dealing with like a weird electronic shifter for example that's in the um uh, pathfinder or the weird buttons that are in the palisade you know you just have to accommodate all of these new features and technologies that sometimes feel a little bit gimmicky and you just don't have that in the, in the toyota now speaking of toyota and gimmicks and technology i want to kind of digress into a topic that you and i discussed earlier this week and it's an article that you found online on the drive written by a Kristen shaw a friend of ours actually who talked to some um, in- interface designers at Lexus all the way back in June. And yeah. we just saw this recently, so we're a, little, we're a little out of date. But I'm bringing this up because every- people who've listened to the podcast before, you know that we think that Lexus is the worst infotainment system on the planet because it has the tiny little touchpad that is extremely mm-hmm. difficult to use in any situation, but especially when you're driving. It's also an ugly interface on the screen itself. Too. Yeah, it's it not looks attractive. ancient. Like, it just does not look easy to use. So this article, this odd article, I mean, not the article itself isn't odd. The subject is odd. Where it was, it's talking to a pair of engineers who back in 2017, apparently, realized how bad the interface was in Lexus vehicles and to a lesser extent Toyota and, and began lobbying to try and make changes to it. And one of these people is a, his title is Connected Technologies Group Vice President, and the other person, Global Chief of User Interface Design and the North American Chief Engineer. You would Mm -hmm. think that with titles like that, they would have some kind of influence at Toyota, but apparently it was an uphill battle to get anyone at the company to actually consider the fact that the existing system was bad. And the, they give an odd reason. They say that, um, so this is, if you've ever driven an Audi in the last few, in the last little while, or a BMW, Mercedes, a lot of these vehicles have touchpads you can use because they're being sold in the Chinese market and kanji is an important um, way for people to interact, like the form of Chinese writing. Is mm-hmm. difficult to put on a screen, but you can draw it on a touchpad and it's easier to use. So the same idea with the Lexus system apparently was there was this in there was like a, a resistance in the company because in Japan, in the Japanese market, kanji was entrenched and people were using remote touch for that. But 
They said that Japanese drivers were more patient, quote unquote, and not as easily frustrated by how awkward the system was. But the odd thing about that, Sammy, and mm-hmm. is that in reading this article, you and I brought this up when we talked about it the first time. Yep. Nowhere did any of the Lexus people mention how unsafe it was to have a system that was difficult to use in terms of distracting you from driving when you're simply trying to do something like change radio stations or add navigation information or do something with the temperature control. So they really frame it as this idea that it's, oh, Americans aren't patient. Americans yeah. are, easily frust- are easily frustrated when in reality, they had a bad system that was borderline dangerous it was absolutely a a chore to use it was cumbersome and not not until i think the lexus uh, the latest lexus rx where they uh, also added a touchscreen to it was a really um a usable system and i think blaming the customers in in this case, is really not a good look for 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 Lexus or Toyota. No, it's a mega Toyota thing to do. First of all, and, and I also I'm under the impression that in different markets there are different um, interfaces. There are some car companies that have completely different um, radio setups to accommodate different brands, and sometimes that has to do with their suppliers, and other times it might have to do with what the customers are used to. Yeah, and, and Kristen's article she talks about how Lexus had straight up consumer information from owners as far back as 2017. Like the guy, one of the guys was hired and he said two weeks after he got hired, he was already hearing about how bad it was from customers. So it's been five years for them to come up with a different system for Lexus. That is baffling. Frankly, just baffling because other car companies have moved, moved much more quickly when it comes to dealing with things that are problems. I I remember Chrysler's shifter, the, they had the electronic mm-hmm. shifter on the dashboard. They had deaths and problems related to that or, you know, never conclusively tied to it. But the idea was it was difficult to know whether the vehicle was in drive, reverse or park. Um, they fixed that very quickly. Uh, Honda redid an entire Civic in the space of two years because it wasn't up to snuff with the rest of the market. But when- sticking with the Honda with the Honda situation, remember they had um, a couple of inter- uh, a, maybe a year where their interface didn't have a volume knob. And they fixed that, like, within the next model year. They fixed that on some vehicles, not all of them. Not all of them. But they did fix it on some. You are correct. What's odd, too, is apparently they were given, like, $300,000 to develop a new system, which seems like the tiniest sum of money I could possibly imagine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, they're like, yeah, that's kind of money you give a team when you're like, you know what? We want to look like we care, (laughs) but we don't want you to actually make a change that we'll have to manufacture differently. So here's a token sum of money. Anyway, all this to say that it's it's a weird look inside. This. The new system's coming out in the NX, uh, which is already out. In the, in the new Tundra as well. Yeah, so the, the system's out now. But it's just an odd peek inside a company that is very regimented, very hierarchical, and doesn't always listen to actual data that's being presented to it by people who own their products. And to me, that's the most interesting aspect of Kristen's article. Just yeah. being able to get inside that culture and see people who, for them, it's normal because that's the corporate world they live in. But from the outside, it seems completely crazy. Absolutely. And I also have to add, this is not like Toyota or Lexus's first run-in with a touchscreen. Like, a lot of Toyota vehicles use the touchscreen. And my uh, my understanding is that prior to remote touch, there was a touchscreen on, on Lexus products back then as well. So... It's just so bizarre for them to have made this decision, stuck to it, 
um, in the face of, of criticism and uh, and potent- and really, I think, dissatisfied um, customers. So we'll include a link to um, Kristen's article in the show notes if you want to check it out yourself and just kind of get a feel for for how how far down the rabbit hole things went at Lexus. I also think that now is a good time to talk about the Volvo that you tested because it too has a bit of a usability um, shakeup going on with it, right? Yeah. So I don't want to go too deep on this Volvo. Um, the week before I had my mouth violated by a dentist, I had a... And you paid him for the privilege. Yes, I did. Paid them, paid him handsomely. I, I had a Volvo V90 cross country uh, 2022. So for those not up to... Oh, a B6 is also in there somewhere. <laughs> For those who aren't up on Volvo terminology, the V90 is their large wagon. The cross-country means it's jacked up a little bit. Like I think it's like minimal extra ground clearance and some body cladding. And B6 is their new version of the four-cylinder engine, which is turbocharged and supercharged. But the B6 has a 48-volt hybrid system now. Are we okay with calling it a, a, a hybrid system? Are we going to follow that like marketing um speak or is it just a 48 volt electrical system no it's a mild hybrid system i think it does do some i think it does provide a little bit of motivation off the line i'm not sure completely but it's it's got a the the thing about b6 sam you covered this when we talked about the xc60 uh earlier or later last year i guess you could say it has 295 horsepower which is a little less than it used to like almost 10 horsepower isn't it yeah and it's the car feels slower it's not slow but it's not quick it has very average performance the v90 is quite large um i used it to to go to toronto and back from montreal so i drove about 800 miles in total and i was a thorough test that's a very thorough test i I love that drive i should do it more often i you should maybe do it once um i (laughs) They they have a I, – I was doing a feature about the semi-autonomous driving systems on the car. Briefly, it was not a success. Uh, Volvo has this thing called Pilot Assist and it's not really – it's not self-driving but it does keep you in your lane. It does do um, – uh, what's the word? Adaptive cruise control and it has a, a lane recognition system all bundled in and it uses cameras and radar to do all of that stuff. So the problem – But that's the usual, right? Like, And also I need to add this. Why is it called Pilot Assist and the Nissan one is called Pro Pilot Assist? Well, they used to I think it used to be called Pilot Assist 2. Oh, okay. <laughs> and now it's just now it's like a prequel. So <laughs> it's a little odd. They changed all the icons too. It used to have my 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 problems with the system are numerous. Let's go through them one by one. Yep. When it's on, it's really hard to know whether it's on. There's a tiny little yellow icon at the bottom of the gauge cluster. That's not enough. It's not in the line of sight. It's not easy to see. Most of the time, it would just flicker on and off, and I wouldn't know until I felt the wheel tug uh, okay. because it was making not it useful. Ad- so suddenly, the car doesn't know. Like you, as the driver, don't know whether or not the car has vision or control over anything, and suddenly yes. it does, and you're supposed to believe it. Then. So the adaptive cruise control, it was very easily covered by road grime, and when that happens, you get it's it's on the Volvo logo on the grill, and there was a lot of slush on the road, or not mm. so much slush, just like wetness mixed with road salt. And that quickly covered it. When that happens, you get a warning that says adaptive cruise control sensor is no longer available. And then you have no cruise control at all. There's no like traditional cruise, which sucks. But at yeah. least you're told. When the um, when the system disengages the steering assist, you don't know. You have to be watching the, the icon. It is no warning. There's no chime. There's nothing. Second, the steering assist really had a hard time holding a straight line. I don't know if it's because there was snow on the road. Uh, it, it didn't seem to matter. I drove on compl- well, on a completely bare stretch of road under normal conditions. It was very twitchy. It would, the steering wheel was constantly moving. 
the car was like not so much pinballing, but just always making corrections in the in the lane. It was frustrating. I turned it off. When ben, ha- give me give me a second with this because I've had more and more vehicles that when you turn on lane keeping assist or lane centering or whatever the feature is, the steering wheel rocks gently side to side like it just shakes like it's twitching left and right and it's exhausting it is the the least reassuring thing (laughs) to have happen it feels like it almost as if you know like back in the day when you used to fake being on uh in a car in a in a tv show the 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 actor would just move the steering wheel in this really like monotonous fashion, left yeah. and right, left and right. Or it's like staring into someone's like, right? it's like staring into someone's eyes, and they're like the eyes are twitching from side to side, like they're gonna make a break for like one side yeah. or the other at any moment, and you can't tell where it's gonna go. And it's that level of uncertainty that you get with this vehicle too. Um, when there was snow on the road, it still worked and it kept it within the lane. But like, and I'm talking about snow on either side of the road, which is an improvement over past pilot assist systems, or I guess I should say over pilot assist too. But um, it would pull me towards the center line where the snow was or a vehicle was more often than not. And I had to turn it off because it just didn't feel safe. Like I didn't feel like I could count on the vehicle knowing where another vehicle was beside me in traffic. And then I went into the manual online and there's like this super long list of things, of situations where pilot assist might not work at all. And like it includes like if there's a shadow or if the lines suddenly, if like we go from two lanes to three lanes, it won't know what to do. Or if there's construction or if there's like multiple lines on the ground, it might just give up. It's like a super long list of caveats as to oh, when you're... Limitations. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So bottom line was... The technology doesn't feel ready for prime time. It doesn't feel – I didn't feel safer when I was using it and I actually felt like I had to pay more attention when it was on because yeah. at any given moment, it might turn itself off or make a bad decision that I had to correct. So I was not pleased with that. This feels like a regression from past Volvo uh, like um, driver assistance, which used to be in – my, in my recollection, used to be very confident feeling – and reassuring and easy to use. Mm, I don't know. Am I, I wrong? Haven't had, I haven't had great experiences with them overall. But I suppose that, yeah, you could say it's a bit of a regression. And then secondly, you've got to give me your your um, impressions of the Android uh, automotive OS um, infotainment system. Because yeah, so I tried really hard to get Android Auto to work on this system. It doesn't work at all. Even if you lo- – it, it, it's – you have to log into the infotainment system. Yeah, you have to log into the infotainment system. But even That's if you, the Android Auto. That's even if it. you do that, you can't download Android Auto. You can't download Waze, for example. You're missing apps that you would normally use with Android Auto. So it's of limited use. It's also very slow, and it requires a data connection that my car didn't have. I actually had to con- communicate with data using my phone over Bluetooth, and that gets old pretty fast. So um, I, did, I wasn't impressed. I didn't find it particularly easy to use, and I found it had fewer features than the previous version of Volvo's uh, um, infotainment, which was called Census, which was itself not that great. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of a step backward. But... I have to say, I want to balance this out by saying good things about the vehicle. Fuel efficiency good, was good luck. Fuel efficiency was okay. There's a ton yeah. of cargo room. It's quite comfortable. Um, and I drove it in some really crappy weather conditions. We saw lots of vehicles off the road in the ditch, eighteen wheelers flipped over, and that kind of stuff. And the vehicle's all-wheel drive felt sure-footed the whole time. I was never worried. Uh, the wipers weren't great. I had trouble keeping the windshield clean, and I went through a ton of washer fluid because of that. There was a lot of smearing, like, directly in my eye line, and the rear window wiper 
just it was pretty useless. Talk to me about these wipers because if I recall, Volvo puts the um, like the fluid, the wiper fluid jets in the wipers themselves, right? Yeah, it just felt like the the wipers were either freezing up or not making perfect contact with the windshield. So um, that's wild. One of the worst. Yeah. That sucks for that feature altogether, right? Like, yeah, that's awful. Okay, and I think that's all I have to say. Was it practical? About, about the uh, about the Volvo. Okay. It's a, it's uh, not an inexpensive vehicle. Um, it's kind of an interesting price point to be at because most of the people there are going to be uh, purchasing an SUV, I think. They stopped making the regular V90 wagon, which is too bad because I liked it without the body cladding. And this is your only real option if you want something in that form factor. So it's kind of a niche alternative to an XC90. And uh, I don't know how many Volvo actually sells in North America. All right, Ben, I'm gonna I'm gonna do you a favor and uh, and close up the podcast just so that you're you can recover um, in, from the pain. So I can close the... up these wounds. <laughs> yes. So, uh, my dear listener, thank you so much for listening to uh, another episode of the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. Let me tell you, we love hearing from our listeners. So, if you want to send us a note, there are a couple of ways of doing that. Um, I would recommend going to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. There's a contact form there. You fill it out, and uh, that that information lands in our inbox, and we can respond right to you um, from our own email, which is great. If you want to email us... Um, Personally, you can do that. It's Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com. Or you can reach out to us on social media. You can find Ben on Instagram. He's at HuntingBenjamin, all one word. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. Um, additionally, if you liked what you were listening to this week, um, I would recommend going to Ko-Fi, ko-fi.com slash Unnamed Automotive Podcast. You can give us a little tip. And uh, it goes a long way in supporting us, letting us know that uh, you like what you're listening to. Paying for Ben's teeth. That's right. Um, or if you want to support us another way, you can just hit subscribe on your podcatcher and leave us a little review or some notes um, that help other people find the podcast. And we're on, ben, st- we're on Stitcher now, which is great. I don't know what that is. What does that mean? Stitcher, it's a, it's a very popular podcasting service. Very popular. Okay. And um, next week, Ben, I'm going to be talking about a trio of luxury crossovers, the Genesis GV70, the BMW X3, and the new Lexus NX with that fancy new infotainment system. I'm going to be talking about the Infiniti QX60, which is a fancier Pathfinder. Okay, here we go. So you'll want to check in next week. I can't wait. See ya. Bye.